Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Joseph Pizzorno, N.D., who is author of The Toxin Solution. Today we will discuss toxins, a primary cause of chronic disease. Dr. Joe has been an academic, intellectual, and clinical leader in functional, integrative, and natural medicine for four decades. He is editor-in-chief of Integrative Medicine, a clinician's journal, president of Salugeneticist, Inc., treasurer of the board of directors of the Institute for Functional Medicine, and founding president of Bastyr University. Welcome. Well, thanks for the kind introduction. I'm delighted to talk with you today. Let's start with something really basic. What are we referring to when we say toxins? Because it sounds like we all know what they are, but it seems that our environment today is chock full of toxins that didn't used to exist. So what are we talking about when we say toxins? What is a toxin? You know, that's a great uh, question to start with. So when I say toxin, I am using a broad definition of the term, and that is anything in the environment, a molecule or element, that disrupts human physiology. So it could be obvious things like arsenic, and people think, well, you only get arsenic poisoning if your spouse is trying to kill you. And while that indeed may be the case, most people don't realize that 10% of the water supplies in the U.S., the public water supplies in the U.S., have arsenic levels that are high enough to be known to induce disease. An obvious example. Another example would be things like BPA or bisphenol A. Uh, this is a chemical that leaches out of any plastic um, uh, products that we come in contact with, either directly through our skin or indirectly through our food, and the bisphenol A causes all kinds of physiological problems in the body. So think about it broadly. Anything that damages our body decreases our health and increases our risk for disease. That seems like an infinite list these days. What well, would you say? Go ahead. <laughs> so I, I've done a few of these interviews, and at the end of them, I, I commonly hear, that's the most depressing interview I've ever done. <laughs> because in reality, there are about 90 of these elements and chemicals in the environment at high enough levels to cause disease. So I am uh, literally lecturing all over the world uh, to doctors, saying that I believe, based on the research, that environmental toxins have become the primary cause of chronic disease. I'm not saying that nutritional deficiencies are not a problem. I'm not saying that eating too much sugar is not a problem. I'm not saying that exercise is not a problem. They're all problems. We've simply added an even bigger problem. What would you say are the top 20 of these toxins out of the 90 big problem toxins? What would you say are the top 20 that we should be aware of? Another great question. So that's, of course, I get um, pretty frequently when uh, I'm lecturing to doctors, and they say, well, okay, you made a compelling case. Which are the worst toxins? So I put together a list, and that list does change a bit as more research becomes available. So when you ask a question of a government agency like the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, they look at the prevalence of the toxin in the environment. Uh, they look at how many people are damaged by it. But they also look at what's in toxic waste dumps. 
So the list I'm going to give you overlaps the CDCs, but is a little bit different in perspective in that I'm focused entirely on which toxins are causing the most disease. So having said that, right there at number one is arsenic. And the reason I have arsenic as number one is because when you look at the amount of arsenic in people's bodies and then look at the research indicating how much disease it causes, it turns out it's the worst. And the reason we know that is because there was a great study done in Italy where they followed 20,000 people for 20 years. In this area of Italy, about half the people were drinking water from uh, wells that had low arsenic levels and half were drinking from wells with high arsenic levels. So it was a great 20-year prospective study where they just looked at these people to say, well, what happened? And they found that people with higher levels of arsenic had more heart disease, they had more strokes, and they had a lot more cancer. And it turns out that the threshold by which you start, at which you start getting increased risk for these diseases is exceeded by 25% of people in the U.S. So I might say people in the U.S. The data in the U.S. and Canada are pretty similar. Uh, I do not have good data for uh, South America or Mexico. I have no reason to think it's any better there because the toxins are just everywhere. So arsenic is number one. From there, we then start looking at things like DDT. You might say, well, wait a minute, DDT was banned 45 years ago. How can it be one of our worst toxins? The problem with DDT is that it's what's called a persistent organic pollutant. It means persistent in that it's once it gets into the environment, once it gets into our bodies, it's almost impossible to get rid of. So even though it was banned 45 years ago, we started looking at the levels of DDT in people's bodies and the amount of disease they have, there's a very, very strong correlation. And the reason for that is that DDT has a half-life in the body, depending upon the person's own unique genetics, of between 3 and 10 years. So once it gets into the body, it's extremely difficult to get out. And because the environment has a lot of it in it, we keep on getting more and more DDT. So DDT is a bad one. Uh, one of the worst things it does is it causes neurological damage and maybe one of the reasons why we are seeing this epidemic of dementia in North America today. Next on my list would be PCBs, and once again, PCBs were banned 40 years ago, but because their half-life in the body is 3 to 25 years, once they get in the body, they are very, very hard to get rid of, and people continue to get them into the body, for example, by eating farmed fish. Farmed fish are contaminated with what are called these persistent organic pollutants like DDT and PCBs. So this is another really big problem. The next one I look at are phthalates. So phthalates are a molecule that's used to keep plastic soft. <clears throat> They're also used in health and beauty aids to uh, solubilize the solvent, to solubilize the fragrances, and to stabilize the fragrances. The problem with the phthalates is that even though they're not persistent organic pollutants, is that they bind to the insulin receptor sites on the cells. So one of the key reasons why people are getting so much more diabetes now over the 50 years I've been involved in medicine, diabetes has increased by a factor of 10. It's 10 times more common now than I was when I was in naturopathic medical school half a century ago. So what's happening here is that by binding to the insulin receptor sites, the cells can't respond to the insulin signals from the pancreas very well. So our poor pancreas has to overproduce insulin in order to get sugar into the cells. It's a good example of how our bodies try to to do the best he can to adapt to whether, whatever environmental challenges we're experiencing. 
But the problem is when you overwork the pancreas for 20 to 30 years, eventually it wears out. Now the pancreas can't produce enough insulin anymore, and now, aha, we've got diabetes. But it took us 20 years to get there. But now we've got diabetes, and getting back from diabetes at that point is very, very difficult. So I can, I can keep on going. Do you, do you want me to keep, do you, maybe I should just list the rest of them, or is that enough now? However you want to do it, they seem to be really important. I'm narrowing it down to 20 if you rather narrow it down to 10. It's up to you. So my, I have my top eight list. Okay, so we'll keep on going down. The next one that I'm uh, very concerned about are what are called the organophosphate pesticides. So this is, these are the most widely used pesticides in the world today. And when you look at research, such as we looked at studies, and we found three studies that looked at the IQ of children born to women in the top 10% organophosphate pesticide exposure compared to those in the bottom 10% of organophosphate pesticide exposure. Iron out all these socioeconomic differences with statistics. And what you find is that those children have a seven-point drop in IQ, apparently only because of organophosphate pesticide exposure in utero when they're in the mother's womb. And one study followed these children for seven years, and they never got their IQ back. What's happening is that the way these insecticides work is by poisoning the neurological system of the insects. And we say, well, yeah, but it was designed just to kill the insects, not humans. Well, these chemicals were designed in World War I by the Germans for chemical warfare to poison the neurological systems of humans. So why do we think spraying it on our food is a good idea? So the reality is that not only do you get a drop in um, IQ, but these kids also have doubling of ADHD, again, because their brains have been poisoned. Next on my list, um, we can talk about a number of different ones. I would say probably next on my list is mercury, uh, which we get from so-called silver fillings, which are 55% mercury, or from eating fish, that is um, big fish that are high in mercury, the mercury that way. Uh, cadmium is another big one. Cadmium now accounts for about 20% of osteoporosis in women. And the reason for that is that the cadmium poisons the cells in the bones that are supposed to make new bone. Where do you get cadmium from? You're thinking, well, I know, to eat cadmium. Well, do you eat conventionally grown soybeans? Because conventionally grown soybeans are grown with what are called organophosphate, I'm sorry, uh, um, high phosphate fertilizers. And these high phosphate fertilizers are often contaminated with cadmium. Another toxin that is problematic, but it's unclear how bad it is, and that's glyphosate. So we now have these genetically modified organisms that are made resistant to the herbicide uh, glyphosate. And so they can spread a lot of glyphosate on these plants and they won't die. Well, the problem is glyphosate is a human toxin. So people eating GMO, GMO foods are getting more glyphosate because it's sprayed on it more, more widely. Another one, uh, and this is really a big factor in people who live in cities or live near roads, and these are what are called particulate matter. So if you want to, what is particulate matter? Well, look at a, a diesel truck going down the highway spewing out these kind of bluish black uh, exhaust. Well, that bluish, bluish black exhaust are what are called particulate matter, and this particulate matter is extremely toxic. So, for example, if a person lives within 50 feet of a major highway, they have a 50% increase in getting a heart attack because of the uh, breathing the fumes, breathing these particulate matter. You might say, well, 
50 feet from a highway, is that very common? Well, drive down the, the freeway in any major city, and you'll see high-rises all around the freeways. But the effect is found up to 100 yards away. So a football field length away, you still have a 15% increased risk of a heart attack because of these, these particulate matter from the vehicles. So I can go on, like you said, horror story after horror story of all these things causing troubles, but it's, it's, it's serious. And I would assert that almost the entire diabetes epidemic is due to environmental toxins. I think the first reaction I had when I read your book earlier this year was, how do you move forward? This is overwhelming. Let's talk about something that we can't do without, in addition to air, of course, which is water. This has been in the news more lately, or perhaps I've been paying more attention since I read your book, but I just saw a documentary not long ago called Troubled Waters, and most recently NPR had a two-segment special on water pollutants, and they talked about 85,000 chemicals that are not tested for in tap water across the country that are potentially toxic. What can you tell us about the water that we drink? Yes, grave concern. So remember I mentioned that 10% of the public water supplies have arsenic levels known to induce disease. Only 50% of public water supplies have even been tested. Okay, And as our human population grows, we're using less and less desirable forms of water, which are much more likely to be contaminated. So the USGS, the, it's a, one of the government agencies, uh, has been testing the water throughout the country and has actually published maps. So you can actually look at a map of the U.S. and see what areas have elevated levels of arsenic, pesticides, the uh, hexavalent chromium, you know, the uh, Aaron Brockovich movie was about the hexavalent chromium. Huge numbers of water supplies are contaminated by that. So you can, anyway, you just look across the the water supplies in the U.S. and they're highly they're highly contaminated. So one of the things I recommend in my book is that everybody only drink water that's been purified and to make sure you put a filter on your shower head because when you're taking a shower with hot water, these things are volatilized and you breathe them in. And the most efficient way to get almost every toxin into the body is by breathing it in. So, for example, cadmium. So the primary source of cadmium for smokers is smoking because when they smoke cigarettes, whose tobacco was grown with high phosphate fertilizers contaminated with cadmium, they have high levels of cadmium. About 95% of the cadmium in a cigarette is actually goes into the body uh, through the lungs very efficiently, whereas cadmium in food, only about 10% of it is absorbed. So I say to people, one of the best ways to decrease your toxicity from water is to only drink purified water and to have a filter on your shower head. In the book, you also talk about chlorine and fluoride and right. making sure that you filter those out. Oops. However, it's not obvious Many of the filters that we looked at when we researched it didn't filter one or both of those molecules. Yes. yes. Yeah, I, I stood up observation and, and well done. So, for example, I mentioned arsenic. 
The the main water filters I suggest to people because they're relatively inexpensive and readily available and work really well are what are called carbon block filters. So there's activated charcoal. It's in these carbon block filters, and they clear almost everything except arsenic. And the only way to clear out arsenic, as near as I can tell, is with reverse osmosis um, systems for, for the house. So, yes, um, AC systems have strengths and weaknesses. If you're on a limited budget, uh, the the carbon block filters work really well. They get rid of about 90, 95% of the toxins. Um, but if you're at a high arsenic level, or with high levels of arsenic in the water supply, you need to only drink purified water or get a reverse osmosis system in your house. When you say carbon block filters, do you just search online for carbon block filters? Are there particular brands that are known to work efficiently? I'm, I'm hesitant to uh, make any particular brand recommendations, uh, but in general, as long as there's a large amount of um, this, this carbon and it's big enough, it should work just fine. It's a fairly straightforward technology. There's nothing fancy about it, so just get a good one. You should be fine. What about well water? I hear from a number of sources that there are concerns from people drinking well water because sometimes the aquifer has been contaminated. Yes. Yes. Uh, very important. Everybody on a water supply of, uh, that's of, of well water must get their water tested. So, for example, I was mentioning before uh, arsenic in the water supply. So this is a problem not just in public water supplies, but also in private water supplies like wells. For example, in Maine, there is this huge uh, incidence of cancer and diabetes in a, in a particular couple of uh, counties in Maine. They went through and figured out that the people were drinking water that was contaminated with arsenic. Now, the threshold for increasing disease risk is 10 micrograms of arsenic per liter of water. You know, liters like 1.1 quarts. So a little less than, about nine, you might say 9 micrograms uh, per um, quart of, uh, 0.9 microgram, uh, yes, 9 micrograms per quart of water. These wells had 100 to 3,000 micrograms of arsenic per quart of water. So you have a dramatic disease increase. So anybody who's chronically unwell, wondering why that's happening, particularly if you have skin rashes or what's called peripheral neuropathy, where your, your, your nerves and your hands and your feet aren't working quite properly, you've got to check for arsenic. It's a far more common problem than it is real, most people realize. And again, private water supplies um, may have contamination, not because of industrialization, but because a number of the, might say, rock formations that water go through happen to be contaminated with arsenic. Someone else said to me, well, what's to say that the bottled water that you buy is any different? In other words, is bottled water, be it purified or spring, artesian, all the varieties, how can you tell whether that is a better alternative? <laughs> Very good question, because a number of them aren't that great. So when people, so I, I drinking bottled water, I believe, is a good idea when you know that your water supply is contaminated. But when you're drinking bottled water, one is it's got to come in, in glass, not plastic. 
because the bottled water is in plastic, you're going to leave some of the some chemicals from it. Second, you must make sure that the water has actually been tested by an independent company, because some companies, when they're doing their bottled water, inadvertently contaminate the bottled water with the technology that they're using. And you may have heard about the one of the very very popular waters a few years ago getting a lot of bad press. Because one of the filters they were using was leaking, was leaking benzene into the water, and the water they were producing was actually contaminated. So it's got to be tested independently. So make sure that the water has been tested independently, and make sure that you buy it in glass containers, not plastic. Correct. Which is a tall order because, of course, it's a lot heavier and a lot more expensive in glass yes. containers, right? Yes. And Laura and I have gone through our home, and we've removed every uh, plastic container in our home. All the storage containers in our home are all glass, and where possible, we even have glass lids. I, I, I can't overemphasize the importance of how important this is, how, how critical this is for health. It's also difficult to come by if you go to many grocery stores. After I read your book, and, of course, we were also dealing with the approach of hurricanes, which right. did not make things easy. What I discovered was that in most instances, there was no glass bottled water except for sparkling water. Most of the supermarkets near where I live had only plastic bottles yes. for their bottled water. Yes. You know, it's, it's a huge problem, and I'm... Uh, what I'm doing during this interview, I'm telling you what is what we want in the ideal world. Uh, and we realize that, unfortunately, what we want in the ideal world is not always available to us. We, we, we have to do the best we can. But one of the areas we're doing the best we can is every opportunity you have to choose plastic or glass, always choose the glass because it's safer. And the same thing with cans. Cans are lined with plastic. Cans are very effective at leaking bisphenol A into the food that's in the cans. Buy food that's in glass or make it yourself. Don't buy food that's stored in plastic, period. Also, some of the other containers, uh, like cartons, have a liner that can cause problems. Is that right? Yes, yes. So it's really a long list of things that you have to look for when you're doing shopping if you're not making everything yourself. Yes. <laughs> I'm, uh, more and more, Laura and I are, are doing as best we can, uh, growing our own food, preparing our food, own food, and buying prepared food as little, as little as possible. One of the other issues that you raise in the toxin solution is the importance of cleansing your body of toxins because they sort of stick to your tissue and don't come out the regular way or the way that you would expect them to and because your system is also sort of overworked. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So our bodies are actually very effective at getting rid of toxins. I mean, we evolved as a species in a toxic world. Now, I, mean, I mentioned arsenic before. So arsenic is an example of a toxin that we've been in contact with as we evolved as a species because so many water supplies are contaminated. So the half-life of arsenic in the body is only two to four days. So, I, so one way I determine how well we are at getting rid of a particular toxin uh, and whether we evolve in, you might say, in conjunction with that toxin is how easy are we 
easily are we able to get rid of it. So arsenic, two or four days. We're good to get rid of arsenic. The problem is if you have arsenic in your water supply and you eat a lot of chicken and rice, you keep on putting arsenic back into your body. Uh, another example would be the what I call the persistent organic pollutants. So these are new-to-nature molecules designed to be difficult to break down. Now, it's kind of technically complex, but they're typically what are called halogenated hydrocarbons. So these are basically organic molecules to which we have added fluorine, chlorine, bromine, uh, iodine, etc., and that then makes them have certain characteristics that are, for example, very, very toxic for insects, um, but that also makes it almost impossible to detoxify. So for our bodies, what we want to do is we want to facilitate all our normal detoxification systems, and when we have a toxin that's so hard to get rid of, do some things to actually help the body get rid of the toxins. So the way we facilitate our body's detox systems is first by decreasing our exposure to toxins. We have a limited ability to get rid of toxins. So let's say we're able to get rid of 50 units of X type of toxins. Well, if you're constantly exposing yourself to 55 units of those toxins, then your toxin level will go up. If you're exposing yourself to 45 units of those toxins, well, your toxin level will slowly go down, but it's going to go down a whole lot better if you're exposing yourself to zero of those toxins because now you've got all the capacity left over to get rid of the stuff that's already in the body. So first thing is decreased exposure. Second thing is we've got to clear up our guts. Because of the modern use of broad-spectrum antibiotics and the use of antacids, we now have, most people now have the wrong kind of bacteria in their guts, and those bacteria are metabolically active, and they produce chemicals that are toxic to human beings. When our body's functioning properly, all that, all those toxins that come from the gut then go, for, go to the liver, and the liver gets rid of most of them if the liver's functioning properly. But because the liver is having to deal with those toxins from the gut, it can't deal with the other toxins we're being exposed to, like, for example, phthalates that we put on our skin when we put lotion on our skin. So we want to clean up the gut first. Second thing we want to do is clean up the liver and get the liver work functions as optimally as possible because uh, ultimately the vast majority of detoxification of these chemicals happens in the liver, so we want to make sure the liver has all molecules that needs to be detoxification. And the third one, and this is relatively new. I didn't used to do this when I was first seeing patients 40 years ago, and that is we have to help people's kidneys because all these chemical toxins, uh, that some of them directly damage the kidneys, some of the kidneys are responsible for getting rid of, but also many of the chemicals that are detoxified by the liver are actually detoxified in a multi-step process where the liver first converts it into water-soluble version, which then is excreted in the kidneys. So now we've got to work on our kidneys because we now have all this kidney failure going on because of all the toxins and also because of drugs people take. And the probably the worst category of drugs damaging the kidneys are what are called the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And what's typically fit into this category are things like aspirin, uh, uh, sedimentifin. Technically, sedimentifin is not, not an NSAID, but it's typically included in that category. Uh, ibuprofen, things of this nature, um, they're very damaging to the kidneys, particularly a sedimentifin. There's a direct correlation between a sediment consumption and the incidence of kidney damage uh, throughout the world. Say that again, please, because for <laughs> so many people think that I'm crazy when I say that. This is supposed to help you, and instead it's damaging your liver. So please say yes. it one more time. 
Okay. So the acetaminophen, while it's nice for reducing pain, most people don't realize not only is it actually pro-inflammatory, but depletes a critical molecule in the body called glutathione because the body has to use up glutathione to detoxify the acetaminophen. Well, depleting the glutathione now makes the liver and the kidneys more susceptible to the other environmental toxins. So the more people take acetaminophen, the more damage they do to their liver and in particular the kidneys. So don't take any. Is that the answer? Well, I'm not going to go that far. What I'm going to say is, rarely use it there's better drugs if you use it occasionally okay no big deal but a lot of people take aspirin and cinnamon almost every day and if you're doing that you're, you're going to cause your body all kinds of trouble so most people may not realize that if you get acetaminophen poisoning, you know, for example, you try to kill yourself by taking too much acetaminophen, or you're drinking a lot of alcohol and taking acetaminophen at the same time and end up in the emergency room, they get people intravenous molecules like what's called N-cystine to produce glutathione to as quickly as possible neutralize the toxins produced by acetaminophen. We keep talking about microscopic invisible toxins, toxins that we are not even aware of, sometimes as in the case of these last substances, toxins that are supposed to be good for us that are prescribed sometimes to help for our pain or elsewhere. Recently, I've heard about microparticles of plastic that are widespread in the water supply and in the oceans. Yes. Is there anything you can tell us about that? So um, these plastics are almost impossible to break down. So once again, to the environment, uh, they very slowly break down. And they cause two huge, they cause a lot of problems, but the two biggest ones are, number one, are simply mechanical or physical. I mean, birds and fish is dying from ingesting these things or getting wrapped around limbs and things like this because they don't break down. You have this physical problem. But the second problem is they continue to leak chemicals into our environment. And while many of the chemicals released by plastics are relatively easy to break down, it takes time. And because it takes time, a lot of those chemicals end up in our bodies. Do the filters that we've been talking about filter out those microparticles as well? Yes. Yeah, that, 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 that's an area where it works quite, quite effectively. Uh, one of the reasons why these um, air fil- why filters are so important in the uh, showers, for example, is because of what are called uh, you know, the, the breakdown parts of the chlorination process. So chlorination of the water supply has had a huge positive impact on human health because 100 years ago people were dying from infections from waterborne infections so by putting chlorine into the water supply uh, we dramatically decreased people dying from waterborne infections and in fact much of the long increase in longevity in humans is because of people not dying from infections in food and water when they're babies okay. so it turns out three quarters of the increase in longevity we've seen over the last hundred years is due to public health so that's good news the bad news is that when you put those organisms in contact with chlorine, it kills them. It kills them by the chlorine binding to the organic compounds in those in those microbes and killing microbes. But now you've got those chlorine-bound organic compounds in the water, and we breathe them, and it increases our risk of cancer. Public health people know this, that they consciously are aware they've increased the risk of cancer by chlorinating the water supply, 
but so many people, some people's health were, was saved, their lives were saved by the coronation. It's a smart public health policy. I fully support it. But you have to take that second step, and that is you got to filter stuff out of your water supply so you don't get that secondary increased risk of cancer. What about the chlorine in pools? You know, that's, that's going to be a topical absorption of the toxins, and yes, potentially problematic. I, um, I'm not as worried about that as the chlorine that's in the water supply that we drink every day, drink and breathe every day. Going back to the water supply, among those 85,000 chemicals that have not been tested for are two that are up and coming on the list of popular names, and that is the one for dioxane and Gen X. I know that they're relatively recent, but is there anything you can tell us about those? Yes, so a big challenge with these new chemicals is that they typically were being used to replace old chemicals that were found to be really bad for humans. The problem is, in order for a chemical to be approved, it typically goes through a relatively short um, process of being tested for toxicity and typically tested for toxicity in isolation. So many toxins I've been discussing, if you look at them all by themselves, just that one toxin, and you look at the doses people are typically being exposed to, it doesn't look that bad. But the problem is there are 90 of these that we're being exposed to, and we add them up all together. You don't get 1 plus 1 equals 2. You get 1 plus 1 equals 3. Because as we're exposed to more and more toxins, our ability to detoxify the toxins becomes saturated, and we no longer have the ability to detoxify the additional toxins we're being exposed to. So you might say, well, that's only one toxin. We shouldn't worry about it too much. No, you've got to look at all the toxins. So when the research is done with a single toxin over a short period of time, it may look fine. But when you put in the context of exposure to a lot of other toxins, and in addition, the, <laughs> the tests were only done for a short period of time, we start dealing with it from that perspective, all of a sudden, wow, these things are much worse than anybody thought. So in places where people know that there are very high levels of these chemicals in their tap water, they really need to find a way around that because apparently at the moment they don't have any safe ways of treating for either of these two chemicals, right? Right, right. So, yes, that's, that's a good way of summarizing it, and that is these chemicals cause damage, period. The more they're in the body, the more damage they're going to cause, and the less of them in your body, the healthier you're going to be. It's just very, very straightforward. And, and you know, you read the case histories in my book. I think I have about 20 case histories, and I actually wrote up 35 case histories uh, for the book, and we just picked 20 that just fit best with the particular chapters. So I've, I've, I've treated literally hundreds of patients through detoxification, and I've gotten to a point now I'm, or I'm, I'm no longer seeing private patients, although I do do some concierge medicine. I now see people who are really wealthy, and when they come to see me because they've been, they've been sick and the regular doctors can't help them, I say to them, I don't really care what disease name you've been, has been applied to you. What I care about is what's your toxic load, what's your nutritional status. Let's get the toxins out, get the nutrients in, give the body a chance to heal, and then let's see what's left over. And the vast majority of people, that's all it takes. Get the toxins out get the nutrients in, and they're fine. And that's sort of the big-picture topic of your book is that if you detox, you've got a nine-week program to detox, 
that many of these chronic illnesses, many of these ailments that people are coming up with have the potential to be alleviated, maybe even disappear. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, again, I've done this with a lot of people. <laughs> My, the challenge of writing the book was try to make it simple enough for people that uh, they can do it, but serious enough that it'll actually get the job done. You talk about ways to make your gut, your liver, and your kidneys healthy and to get rid of the toxins and the bad bacteria and keep yourself safe from toxins as much as possible, as well as fomenting a system that is able to process the toxins as well as possible. Among those, you talk about probiotics. Why? So we have to start by having the gut work properly. So because of the um, modern excessive use of antibiotics and the use of these antacid protein pumps inhibitors and such, a lot of people uh, build up very toxic bacteria in their body. And one of the worst classes is what are called the Clostridia-type bacteria. And the reason the Clostridia are bad is because they actually, when they eat our food, they convert amino acids like tryptophan, which is a really important amino acid for like things like mood and things of this nature. Uh, they actually convert to tryptophan into class of chemicals called indoles and scatols. And these indoles and scatols are metabolic poisons. Now, indoles and scatols, that's, you know, okay, that's a chemical name. Another name for them is putrazine and cadaverine. Okay, that ought to grab your attention because what these are is they basically they're kind of rotting products of proteins that are not being properly properly uh, digested, broken down, and used as necessary. So a lot of patients have a lot of this clostridia. So I put them a program where we use an herb called golden seal to kill off the toxic bacteria. We give them a lot of fiber to absorb the toxins being released as the bacteria being killed, and then finally we give them probiotics. And we give them really good quality probiotics that are as close to what's natural in humans as possible. So you can try to just give people probiotics, but if they've got a good colony well-established of clostridia, just giving probiotics by themselves, it's, it's going to be really hard to get rid of the clostridia, which is why I like getting rid of the clostridia. Let me give you a case, case history. This is a great case history. So um, the, this is a... Uh, a woman who, young woman, she was uh, oh, she was 18 when she came to see me. She uh, was suffering from severe ulcerative colitis, and she had had it since she was 14 years old. And she had just been told by her gastroenterologist that she now failed the third drug regime. Now, no, she said that she had failed. No, the drug failed her, not that she failed the drug. Anyway, so, and they said, you are within two years of having to remove your intestines and put you on a bag, which, you know, nobody wants to do that. It's pretty bad. So uh, she came to see me in desperation because all the conventional treatments had failed for her. Came to see me, and I got some more of her history. Her history was interesting. That is, at age nine, she was having chronic urinary tract infections. So rather than deal with the cause of chronic urinary tract infections, she was put on daily broad-spectrum antibiotics. Well, within two years, she started having all kinds of problems with her gut, as you might expect, because all those, antibi- all those antibiotics wrecked her bacterial flora. And by age 14, she was diagnosed with ulcer- ulcerative colitis. And by age 18, it was so bad, she was close to a clostomy. Uh, uh, anyway, so she was pretty desperate. So 
put on my program where I got rid of the bad bacteria, see with healthy bacteria, got her off weight, gave her more omega-3 fatty acids, and she improved, I'd say, about 35%. Now, normally I, was, I, I want to bring these people all the way to cure. We only got to 35%, so I was trying to figure out what's the next step. She said, well, you know, how about we do a, uh, one of these uh, fecal transplants? And I said, well, it probably actually is a good idea, but it's of questionable legality for me as a doctor, licensed physician, to prescribe this to you because we don't have rules and regulations right now. So if you want to do it yourself, fine. I'm happy to be a resource. So she does a, a fecal transplant from her father, and in the first month, she goes from multiple attacks per day to after a few days, she has only one attack in the first month. She has an attack. She does a second fecal transplant. Only they've done two of these. After second fecal transplant, we are now seven years later. She's not had a recurrence of ulcerative colitis. And the last time I saw her, she said, you know, my ulcerative colitis is gone, and now my farts smell like my dad's, which <laughs> I thought was kind of funny. Anyway, so uh, all we had to do was get the right bacteria in her, and her disease went away. It was, it was just a remarkable example of how important it is to detoxify the gut. And now you're going to have to explain what a fecal transplant is. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, it's kind of what it sounds like, and that is um, you take somebody's stools, uh, you mix them up, and you inject them into your rectum to reseed your gut with those bacteria. And that has, I have read from other cases as well, that the initial fecal transplants have been very successful, just as in your case, right? All right. Yes, and, and some people do get into some trouble with them as well. So it's not, you know, it's not a panacea. You want to make sure you get it from somebody who's relatively healthy. And in retrospect, we should have done our moms, not our dads, because women's fecal uh, makeup is different than men's uh, fecal makeup. So you want to use, go, get as close to nature as you can. But the bottom line is we're just huge, hugely successful. What I'm hearing is this is perhaps a do-it-yourself sort of thing, but under the supervision of someone who understands the issues and not just as a, it might be good for my health, but really under the right circumstances. Absolutely. I, I say, you know, as I say on the, on the television, on the ads, you know, professional drivers only, don't do this at home. So you can do it at home, but you reach a work with somebody who's done this before and knows, knows what's likely to happen. On a related note... One of the things that you mentioned in the book that struck me in the concept was that we get toxins into our body through our gut. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. Okay. So, like, uh, example I mentioned was the uh, bacteria, the uh, wrong bacteria. But there's another factor here, and this is now getting to an area which affects virtually everybody listening to this interview. And that is about two-thirds of people, when they eat wheat, the wheat causes their gut to become excessively permeable for a short period of time. And during that excess permeability, whatever toxins are in the gut then leak into the gut. Now, the category of toxins in the gut that is most conventionally accepted are what are called lipopolysaccharides. So what these are is they're components of the cell walls of the bacteria. So when the bacteria break down, uh, they leak these lipopolysaccharides. When the gut is functioning properly in the intestinal mucosa, the cells are not damaged in the gut. It keeps those lipopolysaccharides out of the body. 
But when the gut mucosa is damaged, we get what's called leaky gut syndrome. It allows these lipopolysaccharides to leak into the body. And it turns out that there's a direct correlation between the level of the lipopolysaccharides in the blood and major chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, dementia. It's all across the board. These things are toxic for us. Now, whether it's the lipopolysaccharides that cause the trouble directly or it's being due to lipopolysaccharides being an indirect measure of excess gut permeability, you know, I don't know that it matters which one it is, but the bottom line is huge, huge disease causation. And we're talking, of course, about gluten. Yep, gluten. Gluten's high in a molecule called gliadin, and the gliadin, is, by the way, it's also found at the same levels in barley and in rye and in lower levels in rice and in corn, but the main sources by far are wheat, barley, and rye, uh, it's a gliadin. A gliadin is what causes the release of a molecule called zonulin in the gut, and that zonulin then causes uh, the gut permeability to increase. Why now? I mean, humans have been consuming gluten, barley, all of these foods for a very long time, since the dawn of civilization. Wheat is supposed to be one of the reasons that humanity developed the way that it did. Why is it a problem now? Good question. So I'm going to answer in two ways. First off, I fully agree with you. Without wheat, um, it's quite human development of human civilization would have been delayed greatly because we'd allowed the production of large amounts of calories and protein. A lot of people live in the cities. They could have, then have schools and add to the knowledge base of humanity. Um, you know, wheat's been incredibly important. Two things have happened. Number one is we've made wheat a far greater percent of our diets than we evolved, than we had before. And second is we cannot say we never had trouble with wheat. We did have trouble with wheat, but there were other things going on as well, and so we didn't notice the problem with wheat. But as we start now start looking at wheat, start looking at the research on wheat, it's actually very clear that it's always been a problem for humanity. And we've aggravated it with our hybridization processes. So what we've done is we've made wheat have higher protein content, which is smart, because that helps with, you know, with civilization feeding people. But the way we've done that is by increasing the gliadin con- content. So gliadin content is something like three times higher in the latest versions of wheat that we're using as compared to the wheat that's, you might say, wild grown. So we basically made more gliadin uh, present in the wheat, and it's a dose-dependent re- dose response. So small amount of gliadin, not much effect, large amounts of gliadin, huge effects, and in, in between amounts of gliadin results in between amounts of, of an effect. The second area is in susceptibility, and that it turns out to have a hygienic component to it. About one quarter of the population does not produce uh, zonulin in response to exposure to the gluten, uh, and about one quarter of the population way produces a huge amount of gliadin uh, of zonulin in response to the wheat consumption, and about half the population is halfway in between. So it's a highly dose-dependent relationship. So someone like me where I'm in, in between group, I can eat wheat once or twice a week as Dr. Cosme trouble, eat, eat, eat wheat every day, and I'll start noticing uh, increased gut permeability and in, increased inflammation in my body. So each of us is our own best doctors. We need to listen to our bodies, what they're saying to us. And everybody listening to this, I recommend, if you're having any kind of chronic disease, try not eating wheat for two weeks. No wheat, rye, or barley. And while you're at it, 
no corn or, or uh, rice to be an oatmeal. Make sure we got all the possible sources. Try that for two weeks and watch what happens to your body. And the reason I say that is I've taken care of a lot of people with chronic disease, and I'll tell you that about half my patients with chronic disease, if they stopped eating wheat, they improved dramatically. You're saying that nearly everyone, I think the numbers that you shared were 80% of the population has some form of reaction, the degree varies, to gluten. Correct. Is that correct? Well, it's, it's technically it's about 75%, but 80, you know, it's between 75 and 80%, so right on. Is this for organic wheat, barley, rye? Is it outside the United States? Is it the same situation, say, for example, in Canada or in Europe and other parts of the world where they have perhaps a different kind of wheat or they process it differently? Does it make any difference? Uh, excellent, excellent question. So if the person's having trouble with gliadin, it doesn't matter where the wheat's coming from. But having said that, uh, it appears to me a number of people have trouble with wheat because of contaminants in the wheat. So, so in other words, how is the wheat being grown? And what are the pesticides, what are the herbicides, what are the toxic metals that they're being exposed to? So some people have trouble with wheat not because of the wheat, but because of the chemicals that contaminate the wheat. I do not know what percent of people uh, we promise due to that. What I will tell you is that uh, people with chronic disease, my first intervention now is always stopping wheat and see what happens. Unless they've got the money where we can just test them for the blood levels of zonulin to begin with to see if that's a problem or not. But most people, it's a really simple way of determining how well their body's going to work. You mention a number of foods that promote health in terms mm -hmm. of toxins and to keep your body healthy, to help your body get rid of toxins, including, for example, turmeric, and I'm assuming it's mm -hmm. because of the curcumin, gotcha. but contrary to everything else, everyone else promoting turmeric, you say no black pepper. Bless you. Correct. Why? <laughs> First off, I want to say I really appreciate your having actually read my book. It sounds like cover to cover, which, is, which I appreciate. Um, so here's the problem with black pepper. Black pepper causes increased gut permeability. So whenever black pepper comes in contact with the cells lying in our intestines, it causes the cells to have increased gut permeability. So I got nothing against pepper per se, it's just that for humans it turns out to be problematic. And this isn't only in the pre detox period, if I'm understanding you correctly. Essentially you're saying, Oh, go ahead, eat the turmeric, it's really good for you, but stay away from the black pepper in general. Oh. Yep, exactly correct. That's what I'm saying to people. What about grapefruit? You also talked about grapefruit. So one of the, the key ways in which the body gets rid of uh, these chemicals is in the liver, and it goes through a two-step process in the liver called phase one and phase two detoxification. Phase one is done through something called the saccharine P450s, We'll call them CYPs for short. Um, and these chemicals either directly break down and neutralize the these, uh, these enzymes, either directly break down and neutralize the chemicals, or they then convert them into a form that's more active, which then in phase two is 
are modified by what's called conjugation, where they add a molecule to that activator intermediate to make it water-soluble so it can be excreted in the kidneys. Now, the phase one uh, enzymes are highly dependent upon a person's genetics, as are the phase two, uh, and they can be increased or what's called induced by various factors in the diet. They can also be inhibited by various factors in the diet. It turns out that grapefruit is high in uh, something called neurintogen, so bioflavonoid, and that neurintogen decreases the activity of cyclone P450 1A2. You might say, well, why is that important? Well, 1A2 detoxifies things like caffeine, for example, and it also detoxifies many of the other similar chemicals in our environment. So people who are having problems with toxicity, one of the things I recommend is that they not consume any grapefruit juice because it actually impairs the liver's ability to break down many of these toxins. So I'm, and I'm a good example of that. I'm, um, I have the, that slow form of the CYP1A2. And if I drink coffee afternoon, a cup of coffee afternoon, I have trouble sleeping at night. So I can only drink coffee before 10 o'clock in the morning. So the same thing, if you start drinking caffeine and you're also consuming grapefruit juice, you're actually going to have trouble getting rid of your caffeine. And maybe causing you have, you may say, I have trouble with insomnia. Why is that happening? Well, it might be because you're consuming grapefruit juice and coffee. And before you say, well, that's just theoretical, there are a number of very expensive chemotherapy drugs that are detoxified by 1A2, CYP1A2, that the doctors intentionally have people take grapefruit juice with them so that the toxic drugs will last longer in the body because they won't break down as quickly because the grapefruit juice is stopping the enzyme. Wow. There's a lot to process and a lot to understand. <laughs> yes. You also talk about the benefits of massages in detoxification as well as the benefits of sauna in detoxification. What can you tell us about that? So when you think about it, so here we are at poor cells, and they're in this bath of environmental toxins. And uh, how do you get rid of them? Well, they've got to be taken back to the liver for the liver to break them down and to the kidneys to break them down. So one way in in order to break up the toxins in the tissues is through massage. So massage improves blood supply, increases lymphatic drainage, which means you're more able to get these toxins out of that environment and get them to where they can be, can be gotten, gotten rid of and where we can be made, more, made healthier. So that's an important part of the massage. The second one, I just forgot what you asked, the second one. What was the second one you asked? Sauna. Oh, yeah, sauna. So saunas are great. So a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Genuis, an MD-PhD in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, uh, ran a very interesting study. He took uh, 10 people, and he put them in the sauna, and then he scraped the, 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 the sweat off as they're in the sauna. So after the sauna for about an hour, you start getting this kind of oily, heavy sweat. And that oily, heavy sweat is full of toxins. So he took the sweat, ran it through the equipment, and he found high levels of mercury, cadmium, PCBs, uh, the uh, uh, pesticides, all these chemicals the body has trouble getting rid of are gotten rid of through the sweat. It's quite impressive. So one of the protocols I have for people is doing saunas, get the toxins out. Is there a difference in that sweat? Say, for example, if you're exercising and you're sweating when you're exercising versus going into an actual sauna? <laughs> yeah. 
I love to talk with you because you, you think like I do. So, of course, when I f- first heard Stephen, uh, uh, Dr. Dennis, uh, give this lecture, that's exactly the question I asked him. I said, well, it doesn't matter how you're sweating. You know, it doesn't have to be a regular sauna, an infrared sauna, uh, running, whatever the case may be. And his response was, as near as he can tell, it doesn't matter how you sweat as long as you sweat and you get the sweat, you absorb the sweat, get it away from the body. And that's one reason why I have some worry about steam, steam saunas, steam rooms, because while they make you sweat, you kind of have that stuff still in contact with your skin. So with the saunas, I recommend people do it lying on a you know, stack of, of uh, towels and then make sure to keep wiping themselves off to get rid of those toxins. Going back to the massage, these days there seems to be a spa in every corner, sometimes more than one, and they all have these frou-frou treatments and herbs and spices and exotic things. It's the actual massage and its effect that I heard you say helps the toxins get out of your system. Are we talking about deep tissue, sports? Is there a particular kind of massage or can it be any frou-frou massage? Good question. I haven't asked that before. Uh, so I, so I, I play a lot of basketball, so I get deep tissue massage a couple times a month to keep me functional. But I don't think that as detoxifying, as a more of what might be called a Swedish massage, where you're moving the soft tissues around a lot. So I would say the ones which move the soft tissues around a lot will be the most effective for this purpose. For people who want to go beyond the information in the book and the appendices and all of the resources that you share there, what would be the next step, either, for example, to find out, well, do they really need a detox nine-week program? Say that you have people who are very healthy, who are vegans. How can they tell, first of all, do they need to go through the nine-week program? And if so, if they're not comfortable doing it, what should they do to reach out to someone who might be able to help them? Great. So my, I, I strongly recommend that they find a doctor who thinks like I do that they can work with. Uh, there are a lot of things that a person can do themselves that I, re, I lay out very, very thoroughly in the Toxin Solution b- a book. Uh, and in reality, having worked with someone who knows what they're doing helps a lot. So virtually any naturopathic doctor has this training. Uh, many functional medicine doctors have this training. And a number of the integrative medicine doctors have this training as well. So it's best you work with somebody who knows how to do it. That sounds really easy, but in practice, at least in this part of the country where I'm at, we have a serious shortage of physicians. There are not enough doctors to go around for all of the people that we have, especially because we here have many aging people moving into the state and already here in the state, and there are just not enough doctors to go around, that's not even taking into account that we're looking at a particular kind of doctor who is open-minded to these ideas and isn't just opening up their prescription pad and writing a prescription for broad-spectrum antibiotics or acetaminophen to get you started. Are there websites or organizations that 
people can go to that they can find who mm-hmm. are in tune with these ideas and this concept of a detox for your body. So um, two suggestions. Number one is uh, the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the Institute for Fun- Institute for Functional Medicine both maintain um, uh, practitioner uh, connection resources on their websites. So you put in where you live, and they'll tell you which doctors are closest to you that have this kind of training. Uh, for those who are interested in doing it themselves and work on the internet, I've been working with a team of very smart people for 15 years now to create an artificial intelligence system that people can interact with that will help them understand what nutritional deficiencies they have, what toxin exposures they have, etc. So, for example, if you put in your zip code, we'll tell you what toxins you're getting in your water and your air. Uh, if you put in any health problems you have, we can tell you which toxins are most likely causing your health problems. So we have a bunch of these tools that are available for people that I think uh, they'll find very, very helpful. So that's what Cellugenesis is all about, is this artificial intelligence system. So if you want to put my email on your podcast, um, I'm happy to give people a free access to our system. Uh, we're going to be launching a new interface early next year, and we're looking for people to do beta testing on our interface. Now, let me be very, be very clear. They're not beta testing our artificial intelligence system because it's been working for many, many years now. But we're, we have a new interface, and we're looking for feedback on our new interface. And, and also, if people have done the 23andMe, for example, they can directly download their genomic results into our AI engine, artificial intelligence engine, and it'll tell them what we learn from their genetics. And by the way, I've used this now on a number of patients, and it is incredibly powerful. So you're, you have an AI system that is able to look at the environment and the person's particular genetics and tell them what the likely toxins are that are causing their illnesses. Is that right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and also, and what to do about it. And how can people find out more about this? So uh, you can mail me a letter, and I'll, uh, get you, I'll give you free access, and mail it to mail to, that's M-A-I-L, the number two, at drpizorno.com, that's D-R-P-I-Z-Z-O-R-N-O.com. And what is the period for the beta testing? We're probably looking at this podcast becoming available in early 2018. Mm-hmm. So until what date is the beta testing open or is this open-ended? So I'll do it for, for two months after your podcast comes out. Okay, excellent. What suggestions, what tips can we leave our listeners with that can help them address some of these issues that can help them Mm -hmm. treat, but that can help them be more aware of and more proactive when dealing with all of these toxins in our environment. We haven't even talked about health and beauty aids. Mm -hmm. Right. So my own personal philosophy is that each person is their own best doctor, and in order to do that, you need to become educated. So sure, you can just accept uh, what authorities tell you, and that's fine because there are a lot of people out there with lots of good skills. But ultimately, I think each person needs to 
understand what is most important for their own body. So that's why I've written these books. I've written uh, 12 books now, four textbooks for doctors, eight books for consumers. You need to read the books that help you help educate you. So my toxin solution is all about toxins. My encyclopedia of natural medicine is about if you already have a disease, how can you use natural therapies to reverse that disease? So the um, uh, there are a lot of lot of tools available for people out there. Uh, my graduates, uh, Michael Murray, uh, Dr. Michael Murray, has written over 20 books in this field. Uh, another of my graduates, uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Diadamo, uh, he's the one who's popularized the whole blood type diet. He's written a lot of great books about how to be healthy. So they're, they're, they're now very good resources. What about dental issues. You mentioned mercury and fillings, and now they've come up with another generation of alternative substances that they're using for dentures and for fillings. What can you tell us about that? Yes, it's a challenge, and uh, and we do need to deal with it. I strongly encourage people to work with dentists who are conscious of this. They call themselves ecological dentists, and they work really hard to be sure as they can to put in the least toxic um, products into people's mouths. Okay, so you want to use gold fillings instead of mercury fillings. Uh, if you don't want any metals, you know, ceramics look like they're better than the plastics. It's a fairly complex field, but fortunately there are dentists who are aware of this work and are working hard to find better solutions for their, for their patients. So you look for ecological dentists. Thank you, Dr. Joel, for joining us from Seattle, Washington. Well, great pleasure to talk with you, and I just love interacting with people who are well, so well-informed like you are. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Joseph Pizzorno, M.D., who is author of The Toxin Solution, who discussed toxins, a primary cause of chronic disease. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.